Hello, friends. It's me again, your miserable creature. Um, hot off the press of posting an episode, I am recording again. It always takes me at least a few days to get them posted. And um, today, I'm going to do something a little bit different because... It is the most wonderful time of the year. Um, I hate fall, as you know, because of the doom and gloom it represents. However, there is one or two shining, um, exceptional parts about this time of year. And I might have mentioned some of them already, going to a pumpkin patch, um decorating for Halloween, and by far my favorite for at least the fast, the fast, the past four or five years is the website Jezebel, which to be fair is mostly a trash pile on fire. Um, no disrespect to any contributors to Jezebel past and present. There's a lot of great people who work for them or who have worked for them. It's just like the way that they deal with everything is just this like gawker kind of bullshit. I don't know. Anyway, they have a thing every year called, I think they just call it scary stories. And I don't know how many years ago it was now, maybe three, maybe more, um, my friend Natalie and I sat in a room and I read her these stories, which are just commenters telling stories of scary things that happened to them. And I read these to her for like an hour and we were spooked. It was scary. And I thought I'd take some time and go back in the back catalog um, and read some of my favorite Jezebel scary stories, and let's get hyped for the season. Um, I don't know how much battery I have left, so I'm going to keep this maybe brief, um, but I love the idea. If you have a real-life scary story, it doesn't have to be a ghost, okay? It doesn't have to be paranormal. If you've just had an experience that you can impart upon me that I can then impart back to the listenership of this podcast, I would love to hear it because I love scary stories. So I'm going to read a couple from 2017 and these are some of the winners. Um, I like to go real deep into the comments and I will literally read every post even when there are 300 comments. But for the sake of expediency, I'm going to read some of this, the winners. This one is called Woman's Best Friend by Tara. My husband lost his job and we ended up moving to a mobile home his parents own in the South Carolina desert where he grew up. Did I say Carolina? South California. Southern California. 
After living my entire life in the liberal enclaves of the Pacific Northwest and North California mountains and forests, an unexpected and unwanted move to a red zone where I knew literally no one besides my in-laws who don't particularly like me was highly stressful to say the least. Add to the situation that our six-year-old was experiencing a major culture shock and homesickness. I was about four months pregnant and my husband was being a major taint crumb. <laughs> okay. Just to give you an idea of the level of stress in the house. Oh, and did I mention we moved in the middle of July when temperatures were hovering around 120 degrees Fahrenheit and my father-in-law neglected to tell us that the AC in the house was broken and there was no flooring in half the place. Yeah, walking nightmare. Waking nightmare, sorry. After about a month of the three of us living in my father-in-law's tiny study, the house is finally livable. It's located at the, on the fringes of a tiny town that is about 45 minutes from the closest city. We have a truck stop gas station, a fire station, a corner store, and a smattering of houses. Our street dead ends at, at and is surrounded by BLM land and is tucked in between low hills slash backs up to mountains. BLM land. I gotta Google that. I'm like, Black Lives Matter land? Oh, Bureau of Land Management. I see. So it is part of the Department of the Interior. <laughs> Black Lives Matter land. <laughs> if only, if only. Half the other houses are uninhabited. My husband found work near his parents' house in the city, and the city is in scare quotes, and since his parents were willing to help with childcare, our kiddo started school there as well. This is a real novel, Jesus. This left me at home with no car for long hours, which I secretly loved because it gave me time to unpack emotionally and physically, and also meant I had limited interaction with my in-laws, so I could enjoy being radiantly pregnant without jabs about how fat my face was getting. Who says that to a pregnant woman? Jesus. One day, about three weeks after we moved into the house, something felt off. I was sitting down in the living room, which has no windows to the front yard, suddenly had the overwhelming feeling that I had to go let my dog in now, even though she'd only been outside for a few minutes. As I walked into the kitchen, I realized that it was eerily silent and still outside. Keep in mind, it was late August in the desert, so the windows and doors were all closed and the AC was on. <clears throat> so I'm not sure I, how I knew it was creepy outside before I opened the door to call in my dog, but somehow I did. Usually there's a breeze or bugs buzzing or hummingbirds sitting up on the feeder on our deck, which had been the case when I let Doggo out. But when I opened up the sliding door to call for my dog, there was absolute silence. When I looked into the yard, I realized why. Sitting at our gate was a gigantic black dog. I don't just mean a big dog. The top of this dog's head was just below the top edge of our eight-foot chain-link gate. It was easily as wide as a Mini Cooper and it looked like a cross between a Newfoundland and a grizzly bear. My dog is a Sharpe pit bull mix, and she only came to about mid-chest on this huge beast. She's sitting there maybe 10 feet from it with just flimsy chain fence between them, watching it quietly. Tears immediately started pouring down my cheeks. I don't cry easily, and suddenly it felt like I was carrying two full-sized adults over my shoulders. It took every ounce of energy I had to walk to the edge of our small deck. I tried to very quietly whistle for my dog and nothing really came out, or if it did, it was swallowed by the silence. Still, 
Right as I whistled, both my dog and the black dog turned their heads to look at me. My dog slowly stood up and calmly walked over to me. You have to understand, she is the derpiest, bounciest collection of happy, squish-faced love and never does anything less than bound across the yard with her tail up, tongue out, and ears perked when she's called. So this was completely out of character. When she reached me, she turned and looked at the black dog, then back at me, then started to walk back towards it like she wanted me to follow her. I made a lunge for her and grabbed her harness. The dog stood up and we locked eyes. I was then hit by the deepest sadness I've ever felt. Worse than when either of my parents died, it was like a cold wave crashed directly in the center of my heart. I was sobbing uncontrollably as I dragged my dog inside. When I looked back, the black dog had begun to walk down the street towards the mountains. It went behind a large Palo Verde shrub and disappeared. I sat on my kitchen floor sobbing and shivering for a good hour despite the searing summer temps. I finally calmed down, worked up the nerve to take my dog out again later that afternoon. When I checked the area around the gate for paw prints, there were none, but there was a giant void in the sandy tire tracks my husband made when he left for work. My dog remained subdued for a while, but was back to herself by the time husband and kid got home. I didn't say anything to him. Things weren't really great between us, and he was in a bad mood. But he noted later on how funny it was that our dog kept pacing back and forth in front of the gate. About a week later, I went in for a neonatal appointment. I'd lost my baby. The doctor said it was a failure to thrive, slash nothing I could have done, slash sometimes these things happen situation. I'd been feeling off for about two weeks, but had just chalked it up to how stressful life had been. I honestly would have marked the black dog off as a stress-induced hallucination or something had my dog not interacted, question mark, with it so extensively. About a month later, I was hiking on the south end of Joshua Tree with my husband. We turned around to follow a hawk that had flown overhead, and there on the trail we just walked was a big black dog. Not as big as the one at the house. This one was closer to the size of a normal Newfoundland. It sat down and, funny as it sounds, sneezed, then got up and walked off. My husband tried to follow it, but lost it. The area we were hiking was all low plants, nowhere for this dog to have come from or gone to without us seeing it for quite a while. Before it appeared, we'd been talking about our baby and had actually settled on a name for him even though we'd never met him. I guess you could say this you could see the black dog as something malicious or blame it for losing the pregnancy, but I don't. I think it came to escort the little soul I had onto its proper place in the universe, and it gives me great comfort to think of a little boy resting in the guard of a big fluffy dog. My husband still thinks the one we saw while hiking was a stray, but whenever my dog meets someone new, she sneezes as a sort of I'm friendly gesture. I think the dog was letting me know that the little guy had made it to where he needed to be safely. Whoa. That was deep. It was sad. I just Googled what does a black dog represent? Because I'm wondering, you know, when we talk about sort of the collective unconscious in symbols that are shared amongst all, you know, all people and all time and all places. If I Google black dog uh, meaning, I can find a page on Wikipedia called black dog and then in parentheses ghost. 
A black dog is a spectral or demonic entity found primarily in the folklore of the British Isles. The black dog is essentially a nocturnal apparition, some of them shapeshifters, and are often said to be, sorry, associated with the devil or described as a ghost or hellhound. Its appearance was regarded as a portent of death. It is generally supposed to be larger than a normal dog and often has large glowing eyes. It is sometimes associated with electrical storms and also with crossroads, places of execution, and ancient pathways. The origins of the black dog are difficult to discern. It is uncertain whether the creature originated in Celtic or Germanic elements of British culture. Throughout European mythology, dogs have been associated with death. Wow. Black dogs are generally regarded as sinister and malevolent, and a few are said to be directly harmful. Now, here's the thing. Black dogs uh, get adopted less than um, other dogs. And that makes me really sad because I love black dogs, and everyone should. They're cute. Mm. Okay. Let's read another one. Oh, this one is scary and too real. Okay. This one is called Camera Obscura by Dirt in the Skirt. That's the name of the commenter. Okay. Tried posting this one a few years ago, but it was too late. Not a ghost story, but it's one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me. It happened during my freshman year of college when I was back in my hometown for Thanksgiving break. I'm from a small town in New England, the kind of place you can't wait to get away from because nothing ever happens there. I guess maybe this was my town's way of getting me back for thinking like that. It was late on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I was at a friend's house happily reunited with my best friends from high school since we were all home for the holiday. A fog settled in that night owing to the classic New England mix of chill and humidity. As I drove home, I went, to, I went by our town's library, which is situated next to a small duck pond. The fog was extra thick over the water and illuminated by the lampposts surrounding the pond. I gave it, a, it gave it an eerie golden glow. Being the film student that I was, I had my camera with me as always. Without thinking, I turned my car around and pulled into the library parking lot, which overlooked the pond. I considered walking down to the pond for a moment, but something told me not to do that. It wasn't fear, not yet. I remember not feeling any fear at all, just excitement and awe at the sight in front of me. But still, I didn't get out of my car, and that decision probably saved my life. Dun 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 dun! Instead, I kept my car running, headlights still on, and rolled down my window. I stuck my arm out the window and took a few photos of the pond and the fog. I pulled my arm back inside and looked over the photos. They were pretty terrible given how bad of a technique I was using. This was the first time something felt wrong. As I looked at the photos, I just felt the best way I can think to explain it is that sometimes I have nightmares about being in open water. I know that there are sharks swimming beneath me. I can't see them, but I know they're there. I realized that I was having that same feeling in my waking life as I looked through these pictures. I felt the danger before I saw it. I looked up from my camera, fully alert, and peered in front of me, but saw nothing for a moment. Then a figure materialized out of the darkness around the pond and into the beams of my headlights. It was a man. He was wearing dark jeans and a black zip-up fleece jacket. His hair was dark and short. I don't remember his face. 
He was walking in the direction of the library, in the direction of my car. I waited, not wanting to let my fear take over. Maybe he wasn't walking toward me. Maybe he was going to the road. But he kept coming toward me, walking faster and getting closer. I remembered my window was down and quickly rolled it up. Then he was right in front of the hood of my car, and I could tell beyond a shadow of a doubt he was staring straight at me. The look in his eyes, his face was expressionless, but his eyes were intent, determined. The moment we made eye contact, the moment I saw that look, I just reacted. I don't remember feeling fear or panic, just being more alert than I had ever been. I never took my eyes off the man as I threw my car into reverse and spun out of the parking lot I was in. But I went the wrong way. Instead of turning my car towards the exit, I turned back toward the parking lot. Yes, there was another exit I could get to, but I would have to drive around the entire library to get there. Either that or reverse all the way out to the road and risk hitting something. A tree, another car. I didn't want to risk crashing. Then I'd have no escape. I decided that I would have to go around the library. It would take longer, but it was the safest option. All these thoughts went through my head in an instant. The man ran to get in front of my car. One of my biggest regrets in life is not running him over there and then, but I didn't. I put my car in drive and waited. He stopped running once he was in front of the car, then took his time. He walked slowly around the hood of my car, staring at me the whole time. Our eyes followed each other. He smiled. The moment he was clear of the front of my car, two things happened. He lunged for my car door. I floored it. I remember the sight of my car sailing past his outstretched hand. I drove as fast as I've ever driven, taking corners at speed around the library. As I came out the other side, the exit was in sight, but the man wasn't. I drove as fast as I could toward the exit. As I got in front of the library again, I looked over and saw the man running as fast as he could to get to my car. I sped out of the library parking lot and onto the main road. The police station was a block away and I made a beeline for it, still driving recklessly fast, hoping to be pulled over by a cop. I got to the police station and that's when the fear finally settled in. I sat in my car and cried, breathing raggedly, completely frozen. I couldn't get out of my car. I was terrified that the man had followed me there and as soon as I got out, he would get me. A police officer came out to my car and escorted me inside. They must have seen me on the security cameras. I spoke with a female sergeant. I told her what happened, gave her the best description I could. They immediately sent cars out, but found no one. I assumed that the man was after my car, my camera maybe, and said that out loud. The female sergeant looked at me and shook her head. What she told me, I'll never forget. I don't think he was after your car or camera. I think he was after you. That is one of the kind of scary stories that is too real and it's not paranormal in any way. It's just like fucking scary. I just read another one. Where did I read it? Somebody was leaving studying at a friend's house up in the hills and the the friend's house they were studying at was way out in the like up in the hills and um so kind of in the boonies and it was like a single lane dirt road and as they're trying to drive back down to get to the main highway um there's like a camper van parked diagonally across the entire road and someone slumped over the wheel and they realized that they um 
there's no way that someone would just happen to pass out at the wheel, completely perfectly blocking the whole road the way they were diagonally. So they just backed the fuck out of there. And as they started to turn around to go back to their friend's house, all these dudes come running out. Um, guys who are clearly meth heads and who are there most likely to rob them. Um, and they just peeled out of there. And um, I, I'm just like, those kinds of stories are scary because it's like, even if it's not true, it feels like it could be true. It's like that urban legend, you know, don't, you know, someone's going to be hiding under your car um, to grab your ankles and kidnap you and kill you and rape you. And it, it, it's crazy. Okay. Okay. This one's called A Little Hole in the Wall by 4,000 of them. Okay, here it goes. Writing this out makes me want to barf. I was a news reporter right out of college, reporting on dismal topics in dismal towns. After three or four years of this, with the help of a friend, I landed an interview at an ad agency in Cincinnati. I got a job writing speeches and press releases and doing the usual early PR career grunt work. After stints in Alaska and West Virginia, Cincy seemed like a metropolis, and I picked a totally refinished first-floor apartment off Craigslist. It was $400 a month. Nice. Jesus. This was probably a while ago. And not in a great part of town, though the landlord assured me it was changing. Besides, in West Virginia, I was living in an old furniture factory for $300 a month and kicking crackheads off the front stoop. This place seemed like a paradise. My huge black dog, Dozer, and I drove, drive down the street for the first time. A library, a record store, restaurants. I pull up to my building a few blocks down from the retail stuff, and it's not at all as described. The vestibule for the apartment is caked with grime, but I already have my key, and I open the door to find an almost eerily perfect apartment. Everything is brand new. The main room is in front, white carpet walls, uh, white walls, a refinished bedroom, a boring but tidy kitchen. Huge windows, high ceilings. In the back is a small bedroom with a door leading out to a tiny three-step back stoop, stoop and a little fenced backyard. Over the next couple of weeks, my friend helps me meet people, including her friend Alan. He's great. We kind of hang out and kind of boyfriend-girlfriend hang out. Who knows? I have to drive around the state a lot for work, and he watches Dozer while I'm gone. I always go to his place to pick her up on my way home. The first time I do this, I come into the back of the apartment with my bags and race to the bathroom to pee. The seat is up, and I fall right into the toilet. I figure Alan left it up and unpack. I go running with Dozer, etc. A couple of weeks later, I have to travel again. I leave my keys with Alan so he can pick up Dozer right after he goes, gets off work. Same routine. I pick her up two days later and go straight home in through the back bedroom door. 
I go to the bathroom and sit down again. Again, I fall right into the toilet. I think I need to ask Alan not to do this when he picks up Dozer. It's so weird. I walk out of the other bathroom door and into the main room. Everything there is covered with a thick layer of dust as if I'd been gone for years. It covers my dining room table, the stray coffee cup I'd left there. It's sunk into my mom's old velvet couch on my picture frames, every nook and cranny of the huge yellow hutch against the wall. It's on the windowsills and on every handle of every drawer. Only the inside handle of the front door is perfectly clean. The door is locked. I realize the white carpet is filled with even more dust. It's white on white, so I hadn't noticed. I get out the vacuum and fill two bags. <clears throat> I call the Seattle-based landlord and say that he, if he's renovating other parts of the building, they need to chill on the construction dust. He says he's short on funds at the moment, and my renovation was and will be the only one. After that, I'm home for a couple of weeks, and everything's fine. I figure the air ducts burped out some old gross stuff. For my next trip, the usual... I come home with Dozer and the seat's up. I had teased Alan about it and he said, I've never used the bathroom in your apartment. I go out into the main room and the box of pictures from college I dragged around for a couple years was on a dining room chair. Every spring break picture of a girl in a bathing suit, some slutty sorority themed outfit, a towel, anything. They are all arranged neatly on a grid on the dining room table. I can feel my blood rushing in my ears. I walk through every room, look under the bed, open the front hall closet with a pair of kitchen shears in my hand. Nothing. I call Alan politely, remembering that I don't know him all that well, not really, and ask him about the pictures. He'd seen nothing like this, he says, and doing such a thing would be hella creepy. I'm so afraid that I can hardly hear him. I call the landlord to see who else has keys, but he's not picking up. I call over and over. I don't want to leave Dozer there. I've just been super weird to Alan, and I don't want to sound insane. I'm just standing in the apartment. I end up taking a picture of the pi picture grid with my digital camera to prove to myself that it happened, clean it up, make a sad dinner, and spend the whole night talking to everyone I can think of on my flip phone. Flip phone. 2005, y'all. Yeah, that explains the $400 a month rent. Until I fall asleep. The doors are locked. Dozer's on the end of the bed, and every light is on. I'm in the office or at home with Dozer all week. Every time I walk in my apartment, I'm terrified, but it's just her, waiting, wagging her tail. I get cool about Alan again. After all, my friends know him, he's really fun, he just doesn't seem like the type. Still, the next time I travel, I drop Dozer off at his house and I don't leave him a key. He insists coming on coming with me when I go back to the apartment. Sitting neatly in the middle of the back stoop is a small black rectangle. I bend down and pick it up. It's the remote control for my fancy digital camera I used as a reporter. Under the sh under is a sheet of paper. It's a printout of the picture of a picture I took of the grid of swimsuit pictures left on my dining room table. Alan goes in for the in the house for me. Everything is locked tight, and my camera, the most valuable item I own, is gone. The living room is covered with deep, pillowy dust. The front doorknob is pristine. I don't clean anything. I leave and go to Alan's place, where I drink as much as possible. I call the landlord again. He says he has a key in Seattle, and I have a key in Cincinnati, and that's all he knows of. I call the non-emergency police, but they are swamped in 2005 Cincinnati. They tell me a neighbor probably has a copy of my key, that all the Northside landlords are grifters, to get my own deadbolt and keep valuables locked in the trunk of my car. They will take a report if I'm willing to drive to the station. 
I buy deadbolts for the front and back doors. I spend as little time in the apartment as possible. I try to break the lease, but the landlord won't let me out, and I can't afford to do anything else. I spend a lot of time with Alan. On the next trip, I come back to find my toilet seat up and a bunch of my food gone. On the trip after that, it's just a day and a half, so I ask Alan to drop in and check on, in on Dozer, do her walks, keep her company. Nothing happens. Trip after that, Alan takes Dozer. Everything's normal. I check the mail. Still nothing but junk circulars, same as the past two months. Nothing I order arrives, so I start having things delivered to my office. But this time when I open the front hall closet to put my coat away, there's the entire past two months of mail. Online orders, packages from my mom and faraway friends, all my bills. They are crushed, open, ransacked, soaking wet, and streaked with dirt. I just run. Out onto the street on this sunny day and everything's normal, but I can't hear. I'm too scared. And slowly I realize the street is busy and my huge dog is out here. And I get myself together enough to hold her collar and sit on the curb. I turn around to face the building. A face at the very top window in the attic sinks below view. Other stuff disappears over time. A collection of coins my dad has given me from places he's visited, more food, any drop of alcohol I buy. But nothing ever happens to me. No one breaks in when I'm home. There are no menacing figures at the window. No creepy feelings at night. And the face in the attic starts to feel like a dream. I even go up there. It's just a bunch of people, extra stuff in storage. This was some asshole with a key, I decide. And I'm making a good chunk of this up. The longer things are normal, the more it fades. I barely sleep. It makes everything feel even dreamier. Then one night, I'm getting dressed to go out. I use the blackness of the long windows to check my reflection. I put on my shoes and one turns white. It's dust again. It's not all over like before. It's concentrated around my huge hutch. I get out the vacuum and get to work, teetering in heels, but it's piled around the side of the hutch, which is hard to move. I turn off the vacuum, brace my legs against the couch, and push, push the hutch out towards the center of the room. In the wall is a hole the size of a man. The dust, of course, had been from the sawing. My company put me up in a hotel after that until I could move. My landlord let me break the lease. Later, during the process of getting a felony conviction, I learned that two men did all that stuff specifically to scare me. That they sat peeping through the gap at the back of the hutch for months. One lived in the apartment next door. The wall opened into a little pocket between the apartment stairwell and the basement. They hid it with plywood. My neighbor described it all for me in court, smiling at me. They watched me check myself out in the full-length mirror, cook meals, watch sad movies, flirt with guys on the phone, do sit-ups, talk to Dozer, have the occasional cry, go to the bathroom, everything. They kept a hoard of snacks from my kitchen in the wall to enjoy while they passed the time. My long kitchen knife was found in the wall, plus a boning knife I didn't recognize. But they didn't want to come in while Dozer was home, and I was never without her. Every morning on the way to work for six months, I'd driven past a wanted billboard featuring one of their faces. I have never lived alone again. <laughs> I didn't manage to get to a ghost story today. Um, I will. Uh, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to keep reading scary stories through the Halloween season. Um, 
I, there are so many of these. And there's not just ones on Jezebel. There's ones on other places. And I love a scary story. So I'm going to try and read a couple, um, two or three, and then post them. Um, and I will still be putting out normal talking episodes where I have things to say about myself and, you know, my thoughts about pie and whatnot. Um, relevant to the last episode, I, um, I did completely entirely forget to mention, um, two things. One, my Thanksgiving meal must contain potatoes, mashed potatoes or potatoes roasted in some kind of, um, fat, you know, either or. That just seemed obvious, you know? And gravy. I didn't say gravy. I don't know what the hell I was smoking that day. Um, also, I um, I forgot to mention banana cream pie, which is a really good pie. Um, those were my two main takeaways. There was something else, but it, it's slipping my mind. And it doesn't matter. I will... Um, Probably come back and post some more scary stories later on this week. I hope you're having a good one. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye.